Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I hope you are excited for this week. Um, I have a lot floating around in my head. <laughs> I have uh, three days worth of Old Testament survey just kind of floating around up here. Music that is still yet to come, uh, and also the sermon. Um, so, <laughs> with that, let's uh, let's hop into this. And uh, I'm really excited about today. It, it, I prepared um, the Old Testament survey for this coming week. Um, mostly ahead of this sermon, and as I was wrapping this up, uh, the sermon, I, I found uh, that it's actually going to be a magnificent, I think, uh, kind of preview and also introduction to uh, our next three days together, um, if you're going to be joining us for this class. Um, if you are not, I want to take the opportunity to um, encourage you to attend. Um, we are in the, in the process of finding more space. <laughs> Uh, to have the class because uh, we have a, a, a good turnout. Um, so if you are a visitor today and you are kind of interested in what goes on behind the scenes at Renovation, um, we offer classes or seminars um, about, we, we try to shoot for about every quarter. Um, some of them are different spaces, but we go through different things from spiritual gifts to a, a, a class on finances and stewardship um, to things like a New Testament survey that we did almost a year ago in September-ish. Um, our last one was a parenting seminar that we do every year. Um, so I want to encourage you guys, if you uh, are interested in that, um, and you're, you're free the next three evenings, uh, Monday through Wednesday, 6 to 9, uh, you're more than welcome to attend. Um, you can talk to Matt or myself about signing up. Um, we'd love to have you. Um, but with that, today, uh, we're going to get kind of an introduction, which I'm pretty excited about because it, it saves me some time tomorrow <laughs> when we get into going into our three-hour rush. So with that, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 1. We're in verse 12 today. I was reading, our, uh, reading the Bible to Adam last night and found myself excited uh, at the prospect of being able to talk to her in depth um, and have conversation, not just, you know, yes and uh, Bible um, but actually have some conversation with her uh, in approximately three years as we're concluding in Ephesians with the armor of God. Um, at this rate, we'll be able to have some in-depth conversation as we bring this book to a close. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, but for now, uh, as we continue to work verse by verse, we are almost to the conclusion of the introduction. Uh, the first 14 verses, if you'll recall, is a really a run-on sentence in the Greek. Uh, there's, there's like no punctuation. Um, so we're getting to the end of this massive doxology that Paul has been throwing out for us. And so let's read 1 through 14 together as we begin to hone in on verse 12 specifically. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Father, you are so good to us in so many ways. Father, I pray today, and as we look at your word, we understand the role that we have in it, and Father, that we can see ultimately your glory. 
Father, as you define for us what hope is and, Father, what your glory is, I pray that your words today would bless our hearts and, Father, lead us to chase solely after you. I pray this in Jesus' name. I have a question today. What is hope? What is hope? So many authors have written on hope. Paul talks about hope all the time. But what is hope? How do you hope in something? How do you quantify it? How do you say, I have a lot of hope in this, a little hope in this? What do you mean? What does it mean when we read here in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, what does that mean? What is, what is meant by that in a, in, a, in a physical way? How can you wrap your mind around what it means to be the first to hope in something? What does Paul mean by hope? What do we as Gentiles have to hope in? How can Christ be our hope? I don't entirely know how you would go about defining hope in any and every situation if someone just walked up to you and said, what is hope? How would you explain it? What would you say that you have hope in? You have hope in lots of things, right? It's even just kind of a casual response to a lot of different events, right? Well, I hope this happens. I'm excited about this. I hope it turns out well. It's almost just like a passive shrugging off, right? And so what is hope for the Christian? If verse 10 is, as we've, we've talked about the past couple weeks, kind of the crux or the fulcrum for the entire book of Ephesians, for everything to be united together in Christ, then what are we hoping for? What does this mean for us? So my proposition today to, to pull a McBee is this. The Christ who is at the center of God's plan to sum up all things in heaven and on earth is also the one in whom we were claimed by God as his portion to the praise of his glory. The proposition is that the Christ who is at the center of God's plan to sum up all things in heaven and on earth is also the one in whom we were claimed by God as his portion to the praise of his glory. What do I mean? Let's explore this together. The first point today is hope in God because we are his possession. We want to be able to begin deciphering what is hope for the Christian and what can we hope in as I believe all of us Gentiles. What does it mean to hope? Well, we can hope in God, because why? We are his possession. So to begin our text today, we have, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Our first phrase is, so that. It's a conditional statement. I can't begin this week without referring to last week. Why? Because this is a big run-on sentence. This is a big thought of Paul, right? So that is a conditional. It's almost therefore, right? What is the therefore therefore? We have to look back to see what he's referring to. If you remember from last week, we see that we have obtained an inheritance. Why? Because we've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so we see that it's this purpose, this working all things, this affecting that we saw last week in the word work, this plan and pleasure of God that has been before time, that is our condition. And so predestination, this, this plan of God, is what makes this happen. So that, so predestination, so that what? So what we see here with Paul is that he's, he's reinforcing at the end of 11, going into 12, this notion that, as we saw last week, I'm trying to play a little bit of catch-up at the same time as we kind of launch into this, this we, the Jews, right? He's specifically speaking in 11 and 12 about the Jews, right? We switch pronouns here, and he's saying we Jews have an inheritance, but as we discovered last week, it's not just the Jews who have an inheritance, right? And see, in a New Testament understanding of the church, we have to balance today this, all right? This is a bit of a juggling act, so I hope you had your coffee. We have to balance faithfully that Paul's talking about the Jews here. And we need to understand it in the Old Testament context. Because if we just take it and paste it to our lives, we're doing it incorrectly, okay? That's not being faithful to the text. We have to first understand that Paul is speaking of the Jews. And as we begin to understand that in its fullness and in its richness, then by implication we can easily see that he means the Gentiles too. He means us too. 
But we have to first understand it in its beauty and its Old Testament. That's why I'm saying this is a great introduction for the next three days. We get to see this, this special treatment and privilege that we're going to see for the Jews by implication given to the Gentiles because we get included into them. And then from that, we see what is including those two together. On that, I, spoil alert, Jesus. Um, he's the one that is going to tie these two things together. So that's your picture today. Jews, by implication, Gentiles, how? And Christ. That's, that's the puzzle today, right? So let's fill in the richness of what this means. What we're going to see is that Paul is reinforcing this notion, this idea that the Jews, the we, have a special place because they were the beginning of the divine plan by means of two phrases that he uses. He says, according to God's plan, right? And because of his decisive resolve. So last week, if you remember, in this idea of the planning of our inheritance, the idea is that he had a meticulous plan, right? It's not just that he said, in general, these people are going to be saved. He meticulously planned, joyfully, right? Believer's salvation. This compounding that we saw last week and talked about even in home gathering, this idea of just building it up and, and making it glorious, it's not just saying this pizza is good. It's this pizza is delicious and it is just oozing with cheese and it is just overflowing with toppings, right? That's how you describe a good pizza. You don't just say, yeah, it's pretty good. Paul's not saying this predestination is pretty good. He's saying it was a meticulous plan of God that he's not only planned, but he's enacting and he's enforcing. It is completely on him and it is his decisive resolve to bring about this meticulous plan and as we're going to see both today and over the next three days if it weren't for the decisive resolve of God Israel would be long gone and by implication we would be too and so what we're going to see I think with this so that as we remember the plans of God the meticulous joyful plans of God and his enacting of them we're going to see today that he is acting in such a gracious way. This inheritance that we've received is so glorious and so gracious. And he's acting in a gracious way to the believing heirs, us, the Jews, the Gentiles, together in Christ, so that he mightily works out everything that is the sum total of his design according to his will. Don't you think of it this way. Salvation comes to us in spite of ourselves, we are nothing. If it were not for the decisive resolve of God, who was mightily working out everything, the sum total of his design, according to his will in my life, I would still be lost without a hope. God saved me in spite of myself. I can look back through my life and see times where I was running headlong away from him. If it were not for his irresistible grace, I would not be here today. The same is true for all of us. We were captive to our flesh, to our sinful desires, and if it were not for the freeing work of God who resolved to save his own, we would still be lost. Why, why am I stressing it so much? Paul does. Paul just, he stresses it. Uh, we cannot just loop around this. His, God's unconditional freedom here is stressed so much so that we can see that whatever he has planned and decided to do will certainly come to pass. We just can't miss it. Paul's not content to just say it's there. He has to say that it is glorious. I think we'll see why in just a minute. So we move from our conditional. We remember verse 11. Remember this inheritance that has been meticulously designed joyfully for you. And let's move into we. So that we who were the first to hope. We who were the first to hope. We, again, as I said, refers to the Jews. We need to keep that puzzle in our mind as we move today. So let, let's talk... Specific, specifically about the Jews, all right? God always had a people, and he not only always had a people, but he did so by always having what we would call a remnant, all right? God maintained a remnant, so a remnant of people that were his own. So who is this remnant? This originally, obviously, is the whole nation 
of Israel. Coming out of the Abrahamic covenant, we see that God is making a people for himself, that he will have a seed that will just number the stars in the heaven, that he will have the number of descendants at the sand of the seas. Why? So that the nations and the world will be blessed through him. And so we see this enacting of the Abrahamic covenant through the Old Testament. Now, what happens as we move out of the monarchy, as we move out of David, Solomon, and then into exciting times we'll discuss tomorrow, um, what happens? They start to falter off. The nation of Israel is no longer as glorious as it once was, and the descendants are being killed. They move into exile, and then even we get to the book of Esther, and there's a decree gone out that says that you can absolutely obliterate the entire nation of Israel. Haman goes to the king and says, grant us this decree. Let us arm ourselves, and in a year from now, let us kill every single Israelite that we find. And so what's the plan? Satan is trying to wipe out the entire lineage of the Messiah, right? We have an entire book dedicated to the idea of God keeping a remnant. We see towards the end of the exile that he's maintained this remnant all the way through its time in exile with Isaiah and his suffering servant. Now, typically, we think of this just as Christ. But let's, originally, let's go back to the original meaning of the prophet. We find that the suffering servant in Isaiah is because the faithful remnant rises from a period of judgment. And so surviving Israel, these people that are still here coming back from the exile, can be called the suffering servant. God has been with them through the fire and through the deep, and now he will make little Israel strong again. Now, there's more of a fulfillment, obviously, right? But the very least, in the immediate, we see that God has kept the people for himself. Out of the glory days of the monarchy and David, into the depths of the exile, and then on into the rebuilding as we move towards Christ. So he's always kept himself a remnant. Now, I guess the question is why? Why has he kept them? Why does this decisive resolve to keep a remnant, why is it such a big deal? Well, I'd argue until our first point, he, they are his possession. Why does he keep a remnant? Because they are his. We see this in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. If you write any verse down today, I, I would say it should be this one. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, we see this. And this sets us up for the entire aspect of this possession. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of his peoples, according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. We see all the way back in Deuteronomy that God has chosen a people for himself. And it's not just that they are his, but they are his heritage, they are his portion move on in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20. It says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Still in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 29. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. You see it in Psalms in chapter 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Now, we also see it in the negative in the Old Testament, all right? So here's the flip side of this heritage, this portion, right? In Psalm 106, verse 40, beginning, it says, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. You know, it helps in making an argument to have it at least both ways to show that it is indeed true. It is indeed true, right? There are his people, but there are times when they're not acting like it, and he begins to abhor that heritage. But what happens? And so he gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. I'm talking about the exile. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. And many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. 
And for their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all people say amen. Praise the Lord. So we see very clearly that the Old Testament gives us a precedent that the Jews are God's people. I think that is without a doubt. And so if they are his possession, why did he possess them? It's not just that God has a people. We, we understand now that he has a people, but why? What was the purpose of having Israel as his heritage or as his possession or his portion? It's very simply to show the character of God. To show the character of God. The idea, as you see, particularly in the Torah, or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we see that God is taking these people and he's not just possessing them. He's taking them and he's setting them apart from everybody else. It's not just that he claimed them, as if we might claim an NFL team, but he takes them and he sets them apart. The idea is to show his character. I mean, we see this all over the place in the ritual and the ceremonial cleanness rules, right? The priests have to be clean. In order to even be in the camp of Israel, regular Israelites had to be ceremonial clean. If you weren't, you waited outside the camp until your ritual clean uh, laws brought you back into the camp. They were to be um, a marked, there was supposed to be a marked difference between Israel and the rest of the nations. It's to show that God is different. So is Israel, so is God. That was to be the message to the world. But it's not just his character, it's even to show specific pieces of his character. For instance, to show his power. I mean, think about this. Had the plan of God been dependent upon the Jews, it would have wholly fell apart, right? But it was God himself who was working it out, Ephesians 1, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. If it had just been the Jews, then we would have remained in Psalm 106.40, and the anger of the Lord would have been kindled against his people, and he would have abhorred his heritage, and that would be it. But for the sake of the covenant, God acted. That shows power. That shows grace. That shows resolve. That shows holiness. As he judges those who are unholy, even his own people, and brings them back into covenant relationship. That's the power of God. So, what separates them? The fact that they are to show the character of God. How does God go about doing that? The law. Right? The Jews are the only ones who have the law. In fact, the Jew prides himself on being one of God's people and that he has the law. When we look at the Pharisees, right? The law men. <laughs> they thought that they were better than everyone. Why? Because they had the law. You think about it, that the divine law had been given to this nation and this nation alone. The Greeks did not have the law. The Persians did not have the law. The Assyrians did not have the law. The Babylonians did not have a law. No one had the law except for Israel. Of course, they don't ever stop to ask whether they kept the law. That doesn't matter. The, the very thing that matters to them is that they have it, right? They possess the law. Well, what happens, I think we see here, when we look specifically at Paul and Acts, uh, Dr. Jones says this, we know what a narrow, bigoted Jewish nationalist he had been and how he prided himself on his nationality. It made him, Paul, intolerant, and the Gentiles were to him but dogs and outsiders. That's not the design God had in mind when he's setting apart a nation for himself, right? But left to ourselves, that's where we would be, and that's where Paul was. So today, if we're going to have hope, what are we putting that hope in? Is it hope in the law? Is it hope in even being chosen necessarily by God? What is our hope specifically 
place in. Our first point, hope in God because we are his possession. We have been chosen, believer. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, you have been chosen by God. To an inheritance that we just saw last week. This is the mighty act of God. But we don't just hope in the possession. Why? We hope in the possession because we see that Jesus Christ has always been the center the whole gospel. It's not just that you've been predestined. There's a certain amount of wonder and glory in the fact that, believer, you were chosen before the foundation of the world, not according to any merit of your own, but according to the sovereign good pleasure of God alone. There's a great amount of glory in that. But it is fulfilled in Christ. It's not just a plan that's been enacted and it's been done in Jesus. And Jesus Christ has always been the center, the whole gospel. So if we want to see what changed Paul, Jesus. Jesus is what changed Paul from being a a bigoted, narrow-minded Jewish nationalist. And now when he thought that the Gentiles were dogs and outsiders, he does a complete 180. It's a complete 180. Why? In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. Here's our most difficult thought for the day, okay? Listen to this. In Christ brings a transition, not just in covenant faith for the remnant and the promised Messiah, but also a transition in the composition of the remnant into the new covenant. I'm going to read that again. We're talking about the phrase, in Christ, okay? Keep in mind the remnant of Jews. So this is how we move from we Jews to the and to the, the Gentiles, right? This is how we're marrying them together. In Christ brings a transition, not just in the covenant faith of the remnant and the promised Messiah that they were hoping for to the future, but it also brings a transition in the composition of the remnant into the new covenant. We are moving into something new when we have Jesus Christ the Messiah. Jeremiah 31 comes to pass as the new covenant is instituted and Jesus is blood at the last supper and it's not just the fact that jews are now hoping for a future messiah because the messiah has now come this we that have hoped includes paul a jew not just in the old covenant but paul who saw jesus on the damascus road it includes all new believers after christ's death on the cross and so it's a it's a shift of faith for the jews as they look to christ the promised messiah but it's also a change in the composition of who institutes and composes the church. Because it's not just the Jews anymore, it's now the Gentiles. And so by implication, we can see the tie here of we who first hoped. Yes, it is totally and completely the Jews. But when we talk about this in Christ, when we talk about this praise to the glory of God, it doesn't just mean the Jews anymore. Because of Christ, this transitional statement here in the middle, because of Christ's work, we now also are there. How do I get there? Well, let's remember as we move through this verse 10, all right? What's the point of Ephesians? Uniting in Christ all things, right? And so, according to Paul, we should consider the general theme of Ephesians to be the one church from Jews and Gentiles. Now, we're going to see a a massive exposition of this in chapter 2, okay? This is just a setup, so hang on. Um, (laughs) This is the setup. We are being united together in Christ, You see, Jesus was the remnant of one, but he was the faithful remnant of one. He was the embodiment of that last Jew. As he became the Messiah, he was the truly righteous and suffering servant. So we see the fulfillment of that Israel remnant. And now then we see the combination of all things being united together in Christ. How do I get that? Well, let's look at Paul's shift first, okay? We know him to be who he was, right? The persecutor of the church. He was the Jew of Jews, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees, he was it when it came to Hebrew nationality. But what happens to him? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, In this epistle to the Ephesian Gentiles, he, Paul, must emphasize this marvelous thing that God has brought to pass. God's great plan is already in operation, and he is a part of it. And they are a part of it. The apostle never ceased to be amazed by this and to be thrilled by it. We recall the interesting phrase that he uses in writing to the Romans where he tells them 
that he was proud of above everything else, that he was the apostle of the Gentiles. He says, I magnify my office, Romans eleven thirteen. This had produced a revolution in his life. What takes him from being a bigoted Jewish nationalist to loving the fact that he is the apostle of the Gentiles? Christ. Christ is doing this crazy, big, awesome plan, and he's included himself in it and us, and he is bringing together Jews and Gentiles. And he's thrilled by that. He's thrilled by that. So he touches on it here in Ephesians chapter 1, and he's going to just blow it out of the water in chapter 2. And then he's going to touch on it again. This is revolutionary, not just in Paul's life, not just in the church, but in history. Apart from this unification in Christ, we Gentiles, my Irish-German blood, all right, is lost without a hope on the face of this planet. If it were not for the work of Christ, particularly in unifying the Jews and the Gentiles, I'm done. I think all of us are. I don't know anybody in here who's olive-skinned. <laughs> we're just not. We're, we're dead. It's over. It is over. So Paul sees this, and he's thrilled by it. Church, are you thrilled by it? Are you thrilled by it? Apart from the work of Christ, we have no hope. So how do you get thrilled by it? You have hope. We have hope. And if you're thrilled about it, you'll tell other people that you're thrilled about it. It won't be hard to get you to smile while we sing. It won't be hard to get you to talk to your coworker when they say, man, life is rough. Are you thrilled by it? So in this unification, we can see the implication again of, of this text specifically and even the next verse that Matt is going to take next week as he says, in him you also. Where do we see it? In Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's, that's the whole thing right there. If you are Christ, church, are you Christ's? You're either a believer or you're not. If you are a believer, then you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, then what? You are Abraham's offspring. You are immediately included right here, right here, into the Abrahamic covenant. That blessing to the nations, you're it. That descendant that numbers the stars, you're one of them. That sand and all the sand on the seashores, you're one of them. And not just are you one of them, but you are heirs according to the promise. That's your inheritance. That's what Paul has been spending 14 verses expounding. That's how verse 10, the thesis for our entire book, works. You are offspring of Abraham. Let's look at it in its full glory in Galatians 3. It should be on the screen for you, starting in verse 23. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. That is a loaded statement. Verse 24, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to to the promise. It should blow your mind. I think Paul finds a point of irony here that the very law that the Jews boasted of condemns them. But 
Christ lived and taught and died and rose again for Jew and Gentile alike. For the Jew had not kept the law any more than the Gentile, even though they possessed it. All, not only made one in Christ, but before we are made one in Christ, we need to understand that we are all made one in sin. Because we have all fallen short of the glory of God. It is only because Christ has made himself responsible for our guilt and our failure and died for the both of us that we can have any reconciliation between men or God. See, when we talk specifically about Christ and or man to man and man to God, we look at two different pictures. You see, Christ will break down, as we're going to see here in Ephesians, and we're seeing even now, this wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. But before he did that, we have to look first at the conclusion of the cross, what happened. The veil was torn, right? Thus ending the wall between men and God. Because of the work of Christ on the cross, we can now enter into the Holy of Holies. You think about the structure of the temple. You have the Gentile court on the outside. It's as far as we're allowed to go. Then as you move inwards, you have where the Jews are allowed, but only the women are, have to stop there. And after that, you have the men. And after that, you have what? The Holy of Holies. We could never enter the Holy of Holies. There was a veil between us and the presence of God. But at the conclusion of the cross, the veil is torn from the top down. It is a work of God. And men can enter into relationship with God. And as we enter into relationship with God, that's what sets up the ability to tear down the wall of hostility between men and men. You see, we are united in Christ, and we become Abraham's offspring. So we have to get rid of all this carnal, fleshly, materialistic, and even these nationalistic ideas. All that's finished. It's the spiritual seed and Abraham and Christ that counts in God's sight. You need to understand that there is a new nation of God's people. There's a new nation of God's people. And we find this everywhere. We find this everywhere. We see that this idea of unification and this culmination of, of hope, this faith that they had. Because what's the faith? That we who were the first to hope. We go back to the separate. The Jews were the first to hope, but what were they hoping they were hoping forward. They were hoping forward to the Messiah, forward to this promised Messiah, this cross that was coming, this future salvation. But what hope happens now? Again, that transition of faith for them is now a faith in Christ, the promised Messiah, the one that has come, the one that has paid the price, that has resurrected from the grave, and has defeated sin, death, and hell. And so now as we move forward, and specifically as we talk about the unification in Christ, Where's our hope? It's both forward to the future consummation and still backwards now to the finished work of God. Jesus Christ has always been the center. That is the fulcrum of all of our faith. For the Jews, it was a hope forward. And for us now at church, it is a look back. We see in Galatians 3 again, in verse 13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. They looked forward, and they were the first. They were a special, unique people, yes. But now we are one. We are one because of the curse that Jesus paid we now, can, the, the blessing of Abraham can come to the Gentiles. But it's always been this way. Like I said, you see it everywhere. The, the Old Testament is rife with examples. Let's look at several of these. I, I just want to turn your attention to the, the major large section of your Bible that we tend to ignore, okay? Let's move through the Old Testament and see that this has always been the plan. Isaiah speaks specifically of a mission to the Gentiles, particularly in using this terminology of being called to the vulnerable. The nations outside of Israel are vulnerable. Why? They're without hope. You see Paul citing Isaiah 11.10 in Romans 15. And you see him citing Isaiah 65 in Romans 10.20. 
specifically to justify the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church. As Paul is writing to Rome, he's using the Old Testament to justify the inclusion of the Romans into the Jewish faith. Joel speaks to the future outpouring of the Spirit on both Jew and Gentile. In the Old Testament, they don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling anyone. And he's looking forward to this outpouring of the Spirit in the future on both Jew and Gentile. Amos speaks to the reunification of the Gentiles and the Jews. And James even uses this in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 to specifically give an argument for inclusion of the Gentiles in the church. Even Jonah shows that God is concerned for the Gentiles as he sees at the end of the day that God is indeed gracious and compassionate. Zephaniah speaks to a future restoration. His main oracle in Zephaniah is concerning a universal judgment. But just as there is a universal judgment in the future restoration, there will be universal worship. The Gentiles will be included into this. Finally, Zechariah, in the midst of rebuilding the temple, so we're rebuilding the second temple, he's anticipating in the present day, while they're rebuilding, a day when the Gentiles are going to worship alongside Israel. A Jew, a a Jew prophet, while rebuilding the temple, the, the dwelling place of God and the center of all Israelite worship, is dreaming of a day when it won't just be Jews. But all of these nations around them will be joining them together in worship of God. And in his future oracle later in the book, he talks about the place of the Gentiles in the kingdom of God and in the renewal of the covenant with the outpouring of the Spirit and the coming of the Messiah. It has always been the plan. It is impossible to miss it. It is absolutely explicit in the Old Testament text. There was a time when the Israelites are God's special people. But now, we've been included. So why is this the plan? (laughs) Why did God come up with this? If this is his meticulous plan that he joyfully worked out, why is this the plan? Why is this the plan? So that we might be to the praise of his glory church how do you respond respond in praise with your whole life respond in praise with your whole life the purpose of all of this is to the praise of his glory we see this explicitly in in Ephesians back in verse 5 His purpose of predestination in verse 5 immediately redounds to the praise of his glorious grace. Here even also, we see that the portion that he chose, those Jews, that remnant, the the people that are his heritage, that he chose and predestined is what? It's for the purpose of the praise of his glory. And see, the idea is that the outworking of God's gracious purposes for Jews and for Gentiles is for his own glory. That's, that's the whole point of it. It's for his glory. And we see easily that the goal is fulfilled, at least partially, when he's honored in the presence of human beings and even angelic powers, when men and women redeemed from sin live in accordance with his will. We talked so much last week about knowing the will of God as we live in accordance with his will and display the family likeness that we talked about several weeks ago, which stamps them as his children. We see earlier that we are now sons of the king and we are heirs with Christ. And so we need to live in such a way that brings honor to the family likeness. That brings praise to God, just as he said in 5. Even here, we see the same argument. I I like what Jones says, uh, Dr. Jones. He says, he goes so far to say this. The test of the verity or the rightness, the the truthness of the Christian's life is whether it brings praise to the glory of God. If you want to know you're a believer, yes, we have 1 John. We we can know, but you want to know according to Dr. Jones? Does your life bring praise to the glory of God? 
That's how you can know whether you are a Christian. I, mean, I think we enter then into one of the toughest parts of this passage. If you thought Jew and Gentile together in Christ was a difficult puzzle, this is tough right here. What is his glory? What is his glory? We began today by trying to define and understand what hope is. And I hope by now you can see why you can hope in God. Because he has meticulously, joyfully planned to save you if you are a believer. And he will bring it to completion, even in spite of you. But what is our role? To bring praise to the glory of God. What is glory? These things are to his praise. That's easy to understand. But what is glory? I am forever indebted to Matt Papa for an understanding of glory. And this is my promo of a book. Um, this is easily already made. I haven't finished it. But it has made my, um, my yearly reading list. And it is like one of my top five books. Okay? Um, I'm pretty much the remainder of my sermon is like chapter one. Okay? I'm just going to admit that. Um, I didn't understand what glory is. Uh, was. Exactly. Right? It's kind of a nebulous idea. Right? It's something that's kind of shifting and it's hard to define what is glorious, what is not glorious, degrees of glory. How do we handle this? I like what Jonathan Edwards says. He says, there's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness, right? We know that honey is sweet. But if you taste honey, you know <laughs> that honey is sweet, right? There's a difference between the two. I think for most of us, myself included, the former a rational sense, right? A rational judgment that honey is sweet. I think that that is our knowledge of the most important reality in the world, the glory of God. We have a rational understanding that God is glorious. And this is supposed to be the entire point of the plan of God. It's to the praise of his glory. And I can't define what glory is. I can't communicate it at the very least. I think we know that it's there, but we don't love that it's there. I think we believe it, but we've never beheld it, right? Glorious. But I don't think that we relish it, because we don't really know what it is. But I don't think that we, because we don't really know what it is. I think James speaks to this. Um, you believe that there is one God. Right? We have a, a mental understanding that there is one God, Yahweh. Good. He said words, I think the demons believe that, and shudder. James 2, 19. In other words, I think that there's a kind of knowing. It's like a cold and heartless kind that's really pointless. And I'm afraid, according to James, it may even be demonic. This cold understanding that God is there. I think the danger for the people in the church, if you are a new believer, then I don't know that you struggle with this quite yet, but the danger I know for those that have been in the church for easily, when we think about the next couple of days as we're going through the Old Testament, what are you probably thinking? All the Sunday school lessons come to mind. The next couple of days as we're going through the Old Testament, what are you probably thinking? All the Sunday school lessons come to mind, right? We're not really going to talk about any of those in the next three days. There's more to it. I think we become apathetic towards the Old Testament as we just think of it as stories. Particularly as we miss it breeds apathy in our lives. Now, what's, what's scary about that, familiarity breeds apathy in our lives. Now, what's, what's scary about that is that we go one step further than even the righteousness, if I dare say, of demons. The demons shudder at least, and we sit there apathetic. I'm disturbed by the lack of understanding of the glory of God in my life particularly and in the life of the church. You can't. You don't. So you'll say this from the in the word, then you, you can't. You don't see the glory of God. So let's, let's try to define and understand glory together, all right? If we're going to be to the praise of his glory, I think we can understand what praise is, and we're certainly going to see how that happens in just a second. But we need to understand what the heck glory is. What does that even mean? Three pieces to this, ready? 
Glory is first weightiness, all right? You need to understand that I can't summarize glory in like one word, all right? It's big for a reason. It's hard to describe for a reason. There are multiple pieces to this. So glory is first weightiness. And so with respect to God, as we talk about the glory of God, it would be understood as God's weightiness. In other words, is an infinite importance and value. Glory is first the weightiness of God. It is valuable. It is infinitely important. First of all, that should register in our hearts as something that we should seek to chase after. If it is infinitely important and infinitely valuable, that's more infinitely important and more infinitely valuable than your paycheck. Infinite value, infinite importance. Secondly, glory is secondly worth and value or dignity. With respect to God, the glory of God is his supreme excellence. Not only is it really important and valuable, but it is supremely excellent. It is the best there is. There is nothing better. And finally, thirdly, I would, I would hope that you memorize this the most, because I think this is the, this is the climax of it. Glory is thirdly goodness. The goodness of God. You see, when Moses on Mount Sinai asked God to show him his glory, how did God respond? I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. Spurgeon says it this way, the brightest gem in the crown of God's glory is his goodness. Calvin says specifically to verse 12 that we're dealing with today, that the word glory by way of eminence denotes in a peculiar manner that which shines in the goodness of God. For there is nothing that is more peculiarly his own or in which he desires to be more glorified than goodness. So, a whole idea of glory is this. Glory defines, glory defined appears, according to Jonathan Edwards, glory is the outshining of internal excellence. Glory, the weight of intrinsic goodness, the manifest gravity of dignity. That's glory. If we want to understand what it means to be to the praise of his glory, we look to what the glory is. The weight of his intrinsic goodness. God is nothing but good. The manifest gravity of his dignity. God is holy. So how, with a God like that, do we respond? What does the praise really mean? We worship. Church, we worship. To the praise of his glory, we worship. But I think that we get stuck here. I think when we worship, we jump back to the rational judgment as our basis for worship. We go back to the fact that God is God. He's glorious, so I should worship. And we try to evoke something within us that is worshipful. We show up on Sunday and we start singing and I'm supposed to worship now, so what do I do? I just sing. But what drives us to worship because I think we get stuck into a rational ascent of God is glorious so I'm going to sing this song and praise him if as David Platt says worship is a rhythm of revelation and response in other words we see something magnificent and then respond in the praise or adoration of that thing then it seems to me that we must begin with revelation if worship is a rhythm of revealing and then responding to something we can't just show up and respond there has to be something for us to respond to. I think we begin with mental assent, typically, and it's just, it's not happening. That's why it gets, it's hard to get in here and say, doxology. I praise him because he's God. I can, I can assent to that. Now, if you think about it this way, when we behold the glory of like a slam dunk, right, a sunset, a rock band, we say, Wow. We overflow with awe. We overflow with awe. We even call others to experience it with us. iTunes is fantastic because it tells me how many times I've listened to a song. I'm on, like, number 78. And I turn it up when Jess is in the car. I'm like, listen to this. This part's awesome. Listen to the bass. Listen to this drum fill. It's glorious. It's awesome. We see a sunset. I've seen a lot of sunsets. Every day at my sink, I can see a sunset. 
but it's beautiful every day. And I say, come look at the sunset. Why? Because I'm overflowing with awe. And in fact, as we call others to it, we particularly show that we're giving value to what we see as valuable. I think our worship stinks. Mine it certainly falls into this category here because we don't see the glory of God as valuable. If I can't define glory, then how in the world am I going to hold it valuable? It doesn't make sense. We worship whatever we enjoy and respect the most, and if I can't define and understand and show you why God is glory, then I'm not going to enjoy it and I'm not going to respect it, and I'm certainly not going to enjoy or respect it the most. Worship never happens before the experience of the action. There's never, a, there's never applause like crazy and then the touchdown. It's always touchdown, roaring applause, right? It's always eat the steak first, then mmm. Glory entices and begins worship. Glory happens first. Praise, worship, responds to it. The vision of glory is where the journey of worship starts. And sometimes the glory appears so great, so massive, so important, that we will sacrifice whatever it takes to get it. I absolutely reorganized my schedule in the fall around the scarlet and gray. Completely. Absolutely transform everything about my life for several months so that I can watch a game on Saturday. You'll find that any events that we have for the church happen to be scheduled on the bye week. Okay? <laughs> or it'll be an evening event because it's a noon game. All right? That's glorious to me. I value it deeply. We'll go and do whatever it takes in order to achieve, to acquire something that is valuable to us. You do it all the time in your parenting, in your job, in your family, in your recreation, and the way that you spend money. It's the reason we buy the $13 burger instead of the $10 burger. This one has another patty and more cheese. It is infinitely more glorious. <laughs> I will pay three more dollars. <laughs> the question I think for us today, at the end of the day, as we look at this, if our hope is in God, then we have to ask the question, is our hope in a God who is glorious? Because my question for you to walk away with today is, where do you go for glory? Where do you go for glory? Everything on this earth will break your heart. Money is not secure enough. Sex isn't thrilling enough. Entertainment isn't impressive enough. Music is not interesting enough. People aren't reliable enough. Food isn't satisfying enough. This world simply isn't good enough. We were created by God and for God, and until we understand that, we are restless, broken-hearted glory chasers, always seeking something more. And only the triune God is large enough and interesting enough. The greatest good, the infinite excellence, that is holiness, enough to bear the weight of the glory and ultimately our worship. Nothing else can carry that. So where do you go for glory? A better question. What are you setting your gaze on? Right, that's the point of this book is to behold the glory of God, to look on God and live. What are you setting your gaze on. John Piper says this, the panorama of his perfection, of God's perfections, is the end of our soul's quest for eternal satisfaction. He is infinite, and that answers our longing for completeness. He's eternal, and that answers to our longing for permanence. He's unchangeable, and that answers to our longing for stability and security. There is none like God. Nothing can compare with him. Money, sex, power, popularity, conquest, nothing can compare with God. And Paul has been showing us what God has done. He's shown us who he is. He's shown us his glory in these first 14 verses. We are God's rescued people. And the whole gospel, as glorious as it is, should transform our whole life. 
if we are indeed rescued. And what is the point of this? It's to the praise of his glory. We're getting ready to sing, Behold our God. We're getting ready to sing, Glory to God forever. There's your puzzle pieces for church. Let's praise him in his glory, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for today. Father, we thank you for a day that we can come and experience your goodness. Father, that you are good to us indeed. Father, even in suffering, we know that you are good. We know that you are concerned for us. And Father, that when we cry out, you hear us. But Father, that you are great and mighty and powerful and able to save. And Father, I pray that you would transform our hearts as we behold your glory. That Father, we would deem that and see it as infinitely valuable. And Father, that we would, be, we would make foolish decisions to chase after your glory. And Father, that we would just chase it with everything that we are. And Father, as we develop a rhythm of seeing your revelation, seeing your word, your mighty deeds, as the Israelites constantly recount the mighty deeds that you have done. And Father, we would see that and we would turn to praise. And Father, that we would be set apart from this world by the fact that we praise you. We don't praise anything else this culture loves and adores and admires, Father, as it changes from hour to hour. But, Father, we admire and praise and love you. And we're no longer set apart by law, but we're set apart by worship. Our worship is completely different than the rest of our world because we are your possession. Father, we love you and we thank you for all these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.